and I'm Roger Bellwest. And this is Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice, a summer special edition. Um, the heat waves have hit Highwick, which means it's uh, not raining every day. But when it rains, it will be hot and wet. That's true, and sticky as well. And uh, this uh, spe- summer special edition, we're going to planning to be talking about story and Shakespeare and cyberpunk, uh, amongst other things. But first, I would like to say thank you to Paul McLean and the crew at yogsofoff.com who have given us a very generous plug in the Silver Lodge. And you sh- if you're not a patron of yogsofoff.com, you should become one and listen to it because it's great. There we go, rubbish. Rub- that's called uh, scratching each other's back, isn't it? Something like that. Mutual publicity. It's, uh, it's social networking, I think. So, to begin with, story. Now, this is a, a topic we've been sort of dancing around a bit in past broadcasts. Mm. I, I think part of the problem in the story in role-playing games is it started off as what one might call a faux art. So people know what works. They know what they play. Mm-hmm. They like what they play. I think it's still a faux art. But the, the idea of formal description of what goes on in a role-playing game came much later, and that there isn't really, I think, even yet a settled terminology for it. No, um, lots of people mean one thing. Well, any field of uh, art criticism tends to be a little fluid in, in terminology, but ours is, uh, is very fluid, it must be said. I think what my problem is with the idea that all games are story games, is that in my experience, story isn't the thing you aim at. It's almost a byproduct. It's something that emerges from the things you're doing in order to enjoy the game. Is that is that fair enough? Yes, it depends on what you mean by story games. I, I would say that if you have a role-playing game in which you do not get something that is recognisable as a story out at the end of it, mm. it's probably not going to be a satisfying game. I don't know, do people do people treasure the stories of what happened? I know I mean I know people some people do. They want to retell triumphs and they want to preserve their memories of how things turned out. Well the if one is talking about a role playing game experience one's had one is essentially telling a story about it, and mm. one is recounting what happened. Yeah, but the the sensation of actually playing a role-playing game, for me, what I'm, I'm, I'm leaning towards at that time is immersion, is being there in the moment and focusing on what it's like to be that person going through whatever it is they're, they're going through, whether it's it's a combat or a, or, or a negotiation or, or an emotional crisis. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying story is the only thing, but I do think it is an essential thing. I, I think a, ge- a game that doesn't have story is going to fail. Is a session necessarily unsatisfactory because it comes to no conclusion? I would say a session, no, but an, an overall campaign, yes. Very probably. All right, I'll accept that. I'll accept. I'll accept that uh, for for the moment. There needs to be some sort of structure, but you can't. Role playing games are all about choice. If we didn't have choice in them, if we were, if we were just spectators, we'd be we'd be doing um, radio theatre for real. We'd be we'd be 
going through the motions and watching a narrative that's set roll out in, fr in front of us. Whereas what we want, or I want anyway, is a chance to say, no, hang on a minute, let's do it this way. Let's try it that way. Let's see what happens if, if this um, is the way we approach the problem. And it strikes me that story games, games which say this, the story is what it is about, prescribe the conclusion. They ask questions assuming they know the answer. I think perhaps a, an example might be useful. All right. the, a, a really canonical example of this is, is the Mountain Witch. Yeah. The story is you are a bunch of samurai going up a mountain to deal with the witch. Yeah, but that, even, that is the only story that this game supports. There is room for variation, but it's always going to be in that basic framework. And, there, and we, as we've said before, there are a number of small indie games which are, in order to make the, the, the art more detailed, cramp down, down the scope to, to, to that degree. And, and to, to some extent, this effectively it can overlap into what, what we would traditionally call an adventure. Hmm. As in, there is this set of game mechanics and an adventure that goes with them, and that, that set of mechanics isn't going to be used for anything else. They're written specifically for this adventure, Lady Blackbird, for yeah. example. There. But, but in both those cases, you're allowed to make it come out differently. In fact, you're encouraged to. It's, it's not a, a constricting, it's an, an expanding um, from, it's expanding from a very detailed start. It can only go in so many directions. Perhaps, but the, I don't think you could write down a set of how each one is going to come out with every conceivable player. It's not a it's not a closed set like all the moves in chess. Yeah. I think part of my problem is that story games tend to take you out of the moment. They cast you in the role not of a person in the situation or even an actor in the play. They cast you as a member of the creative team, as a, a member of the writer's team, in yeah. fact. And you are constantly a step backwards from the realisation of what's going on. My most intense role-playing moments have been in LARPs, when I've, I've been up from the table and, and acting my little heart out, and just running with the moment. Um, I, I, I now know what my last words are likely to be, uh, thanks to uh, one of Jane Fenn's marvellous uh, LARPs in which I got to die. I, I, lo lo I love a good death scene. Yeah. Uh, but with something like um, Hero Quest, I don't need to slag off Robin because as I, I said I, I, I really want to love Hero Quest. The thing that broke me with it was the fact that when you get into the major combats, or the major conflicts of whatever sort, you're not supposed to be resolving what's actually happened in the combat until it comes to an end, until you know who's won and who's lost. And my players um, would look at me, and I'd look at them, and they'd say, you mean I c I I've been in this fight for some time now, for X exchange of blows, and I can't look down at myself and see if I'm wounded? Yep. And that broke... Not only the immersion, but any sense of suspension of disbelief. And another problem with the uh, with that with that sort of mechanic is that you have to define beforehand what any conflict is about. You have to say 
who's going to win, who's going to lose, and what it's what it's all about. Or, or at the very least, what are the stakes in this? Yeah. And I think that the the, the moments when in real life, like I've been, re I was rereading is a spoiler, um, the Player of Games by Ian Banks because he he's just passed on, and the moment at the end in which one contestant in the in the great game throws over the table and um, tries to change the terms of the contest only to find that it's already been changed from underneath him. That's the sort of thing that I don't think is allowed in a system where you've got to define and close down before you start. At the very least you're not going to be surprised by that. Yeah. You, you're going, you, you would have to negotiate as it might be I am going to win this small thing, but it's going to give me a disadvantage in the longer term, hmm. and then narrate how that happens. Yeah, I, it, may, it may be that my, my brain, my poor brain, is too um, aged and non-nimble nowadays. But I find that, though I don't require a lot of simulation in my games, that simulation helps in the creation of story and in the creation of character. Yep. If I can say, well, this is my character, he can do these sorts of things, and maybe these sorts of things that he's never tried before in his life, then I can allow my flights of fancy to, to take off from there. Yeah. One, one of the things I see in a, in a lot of story-type games is the idea that all abilities are of equal value and they can be used for everything. I, I, so I, to I, me, I, that loses flavour. I, I think it loses flavour... I think the fact that the, I don't think that's actually what 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 some of them say, but I think that is a, a way they do end up being played. Um, well, say so, so fudge at, factors. At, I suppose, at the very least, you, sh you should be able to say, right, um, my my character is a noble who knows you know, lo lots of obscure ceremonies and how to be a noble and a little bit of formal combat, yeah. and your character is a hairy barbarian who's put all his points into axe, mm. and we can be on some sort of equal footing when we're bashing monsters. Well, we can be, yeah. There was a, an argument a long time ago on the uh, what was then Hero Wars um, playtest list about uh, an ability which was included in one of the um, sample characters, which was Dazzle with the Beauty of Flowers. And uh, well, she was really good at it. She was a, a, a first level master, had first level mastery in Dazzle with the Beauty of Flowers because she was a priestess of the of Oriah, the goddess of spring. And um, it got into a, con uh, um, a long conversation, I recall, about how she would handle being in combat with a troll whose basic response to flowers is, um, eat, and whose basic response to anybody defying them is, um, smash. Fairly spoken, I, thi I think that the eventual resolution was, you can try it, but it might well not work. You are you are you are channeling a god, and a god is a powerful thing. But a troll has a very high resistance to subtlety. Used well, I think the that that, that sort of system can take a great weight off the off the, the GM's mind. I, as again, I'm pleading old age. I'm getting tired and tired of systems which require me to um, do a lot of pre pre uh, pre work and where I can't improvise easily. And uh, Hero Quest's ability to stat up things very, very quickly and create things with a few impressionist waves is, is something I really, really want to like. But I, I, 
as I say, I cannot like the, the, the core resolution system, which makes assumptions. Part of the problem, I think, maybe it's trying to resolve every sort of conflict with a single mechanic, which is a, a, a bold and courageous thing to try to do. You said in the civil servant tone of voice. <laughs> All right, yeah, I, I, I think we, we agreed on, on, we are up to a point that, uh, agree, agreed on this. Well, the, where I starts to feel a bit uncomfortable, and let, let's pause it a mechanic. I don't think there's a game that actually okay, does yeah. this, though. Um, Gerps Monster Hunters comes close, in fact. Um, you've got a essentially a mystery solving game. Yeah. And as you as you go along, you you as you do the things that investigators do, you interview people, you poke over the scenes of the crimes, whatever. Yeah. You are going to gain some sort of arbitrary resource. Let's call them clue points. Yeah, and when you have enough clue points, and only then, um, you you may start actually being able to accuse the right person. Uh, in fact, in a sufficiently freeform game, you you might let the players decide who the right person to accuse is. Yeah. Um, um, but but in that but in any case, you you've got this abstract resource, hmm. and what the players have to do is get their PCs to take the actions which will get them that resource. Yeah. Now, in in a well written game, that means they will be doing the things that investigators should be doing yeah. and this is this is great but it, it is that distancing effect you mentioned it, it put, puts me out slightly to a to a meta game level and say well you know i could interview somebody else but if i go and look at the scene of the crime i'm going to get more points <laughs> <laughs> oh i i I, th I think there's a whole lot of things i should mention a, a, a web browser game that I'm, I'm in at the moment which is in beta called fallen london where i'm rushing around like nobody's business trying to pick up obscure clues and uh, get the num right number of levels in, in things. And the fact that I keep on going back and repeating things is spoiling my immersion a little bit. Yeah. I think as a general rule, I think abstract, bad, concrete, good in terms of, of art. At least up to a point, yeah. Well, there comes a point where... Well, where, where is your point? Um, I'm just thinking in terms of role-playing um, that there are... It is entirely possible to be too detailed and simply... Yeah. The, 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 neither the players nor the GM maybe particularly cares exactly how wounded somebody is. Or, yeah, you know, um, the, 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 there's a uh, harm master. I think requires you, you have some sort of knowledge of uh, internal medicine before you can really appreciate how how, how the system's working. <laughs> um, and it, it it's a very much that's very much a matter of taste though. I speaking of Ian Banks and the player of games again, I was irritated by his book in a sort of train spotter sort of way because he hand waved the um uh, the, uh, the the games that were supposedly uh, the the core theme when it's really about the uh, the, the people involved and um I, be, I i become aware that you can care too much about the details and i am aware that i'm writing stuff about magicians at the moment and i'm hand waving the magic um, and what's really going on like nobody's business Another thing that concerns me slightly is I'm looking at the history of film, and yeah. early film is very much we will take a stage play because that's what we understand, yeah. and we will put a camera in front of it. As late as as late as the first version of Dracula, um, yeah, people were doing that, and it, it was only when people stopped trying, or at least stopped always trying, to to copy the stage effects and st started to. Um, branch out a bit, that, that film started to develop what one might call the native language of film. Yeah. Uh, my slight concern, if, you, if you're taking a role-playing game and saying, right, this, this is a game of a, of a police procedural show, or it's a game of 
fantasy heroes or whatever, but you know, you're constraining the story that you tell. I'm concerned that you you may not get to the emergent native mm. language story that would that could come out of a roleplaying game. I think that may not may not that may be an acceptable loss. There, but... there, there's there. You have to that you have to make the game about something, but that about has to be the starting point and not the ending point as well. People do praise um, Greg Stafford for uh, closing down the possibility of anybody but but knights being player characters in Pendragon. And you can see why he did it, because that's what it wants to be about. But on the whole, I want the I want what it's the setup to be clear enough that you can go wherever the story allows you to allows you to go. And I I find uh, there's a uh, Robin Laws, hello Robin if you're listening, has written a book called Hamlet's Hit Points in which he uses a technique for analysing screenplays in order to talk about pacing and uh, how you structure a role-playing game. And I don't think it's appropriate. He's written it into the second version of Hero Quest, and the idea that all threats to the player characters are relative not to their own skill, but to the place you are in the story. If you need a weak challenge now, your mastermind is going to be suddenly weak. And if you need a strong challenge, the mooks over there are going to be suddenly strong, if that's what you're ending up facing. And that feels wrong to me. Yeah, I must admit, I, I'm also inclined to leave things a lot more open-ended. Uh, the impression I get from Hamlet's hit points, I may, I may be reading it wrong, is that the GM should at least be thinking in terms of, I would like this scene to produce a positive or a negative outcome. It may not be definite, yeah. but that's roughly the way it should be going. Whereas I'm much more inclined to say, well, let's see what happens. Yeah. Uh, the Emperor of Barriar would agree with you. <laughs> that There's a geeky reference, if you like. I think, I continue to think, that the possibility of tragic failure of the players and the player characters screwing up enormously is a valuable resource and should not be excluded out of hand. At the very least, the players should believe that it is possible, even if it isn't. I find it easier for them to believe it if I believe it myself in my heart, isn't yes. it? Yeah. And if it happens occasionally. Yeah. Um, trouble is, I always feel desperately depressed and that it's my fault when I've done it. I, I think an approach I, I take is basically the game is not about creating art, it's about having fun. True. And hey, hey, wait, wait, wait a moment, wait a moment. I would like to examine the assumptions under that last statement. If you have to choose one or the other. Well, I, excuse me, I think art should be fun. And as I say, I love a good death scene. But some, sometimes there will be things that are fun that are not art. There will be things mm. that are fun that don't progress the story. I some, some very enjoyable sessions have been basically in-character discussions about what we're going to do next. Mm. True. Uh, this doesn't advance the plot. Uh, or or w well, when, when a couple of the PCs decide they're going to go shopping. Oh, God, I hate shopping scenes, but I'm good at them. Yes, but if the players enjoy them... Well, it's true, yes. And every, shop every shopping scene is a potential uh, complication. <laughs> and uh, sh uh, uh, and I pers personally, I suspect I'm punishing my players when I give them a, give them a shopping scene, but um, that may just be my twisted psychology. Story games... So, say they, they will try to make every session a memorable session. Mm. I don't know if they succeed. This is certainly not something you get with an emergent game. Uh, sometimes you will just get a session where people are chatting and not doing stuff. 
I try and whip, I try and whip, whip them along. I believe stuff should happen. I've been bored out of my tiny mind in games where nothing happens, and most importantly, I didn't get to do anything. Yeah, the the GM is a player too. Everybody should be having fun. Oh, hang on, that was me. So. As, that was me as player. Right. I have sat behind some GMs who did not know how to whip the pace along. Yeah. And thought, oh god, give me give me more stuff happening. So for me, rule zero is everybody should be having fun. This is true. This is this is our this is our aiming point. So here's here's an example. All right. Is this a story game or is it not? It's not sold as such. It's the board game, the Arkham Horror. Ooh. You you have a series of conflicts which are which are, in theory, giving you progress towards a greater goal. Yeah. You have a very simple resolution mechanism for those conflicts. Mm. If you play the game just as that, just as I'm going to get these pluses and roll this die, it's very boring. Mm. What makes it fun is narrating at least approximately what's going on. Hey. So you you make the die roll and say, okay, the the monster got to me. Then you, then you tell a little story about it. Hmm. The well, people are are doing that with board games all the time. One of the Intensest, if shallowest, uh, role-playing experiences you can have is playing the great Dalmuti, whose point mm. is not disposing of cards; it's playing the social structure um, of uh, "I'm the great Dalmuti, and you are the lesser peasants." So there, yeah. There are more detailed uh, ga- games, but um, for English people, this is terribly fun. <laughs> British, British people. I shouldn't be. Uh, I shouldn't be exclusionist, but the English especially. I'm looking forward to what's Robin's new system called? Um, Hillfolk. Hillfolk. I'm looking forward to that. Mm, me too. In a perverse sort of way, um, and I expect to sort of be to be annoyed by it and admire it simultaneously. Yes, I I like a great deal of Robin's work. Um, I don't tend actually to run it, but I'm quite happy to mine it for ideas. Oh well, yeah. Plagiarize, plagiarize. Let no one's working. Plagiarize. <laughs> yeah. Let's move on. section we're going to talk uh, around the topic of campaign design of where to start and where to go on to when you're actually at the start of um, a new set of adventures I'm at this position at the moment um, I'm currently being a player and uh, twiddling my thumbs and writing down ideas like nobody's business so you are committed and probably ought to be to uh, running something for uh, group and you're seeking around and you've got some sort of idea how do you start to flesh it out two traditional approaches i think mm. um start at the top and start at the bottom yeah start at the top you know i, I will i will draw a great big world map oh the great big world maps with the with the mountains let us have some mountains over here so the players will have something to fall off uh, <laughs> as i seem to recall an early pioneer saying and uh, lots of rivers, and lo- and then you have to make up names. Oh dear, names are a bugger. And the the opposite approach is to start at the bottom. The, the traditional thing is start with one dungeon and the town that's near it. Yeah. And expand from there. I should say that, in my opinion, you need to do both. Um, yeah. If you look at uh, the classic example, Grantha, it starts with Greg Stafford having these uh, wild, um, fantasy novel ideas in the in the late sixties. Goes on to the the huge scale of White Bear Red Moon, or later became Dragon Pass, with the armies clashing in really weird, high-powered individuals. And then, when 
RuneQuest itself comes on, it crashes down to the level of Applemain, a small village between the two competing tribes and with uh, Nin and the Temple and uh, some trolls in a cave nearby. While there's always the sense that you, if you survive, you will go on to greater things, then they're not mm. in part of your immediate concern. And as, as a matter of, of, of world design, it allowed the editors, the creators, to put things in gradually, stage by stage by stage, and fill in the difference between, in the beginning, the world emerged from the darkness, and um, here am I, and it's, it's, uh, it's wild day morning, and I need some money. And that's the way, that, that is the way, way to do it, I think, top, off, top down and bottom up. Yeah, I, I generally try to do that as well. I, I like to have some sort of high order stuff, and even if it's something like what the gods are, or yeah. just what the local gods are. People are going to ask that if they do. Yeah, or what the schools of magic are. Um, it satisfies me, even if it's not something that's going to end up directly in play. Um, it, it, it's a classic thing of, of uh, sense of fantasy authors that you should not show your research. Yeah, you should. Um... Well, not not until they pay you a vast amount of money for for it um, um, when you finish writing the actual book. Yeah, but but the book of all the notes on who's where and what and what their cultures are like is not something that should need to be no. printed to direct. The other advantage of having a bit of high order stuff is it lets me be consistent in the smaller things. Yeah. Say if if I'm running a science fiction game, I've defined how the jump drive works. You mean yeah. it takes about this long? It's about this reliable, this accurate, and so on. That is immediately going to constrain the sort of stories I can tell, hmm. and some some of the plots simply aren't going to work with a, with a particular sort of hyperspace system. And if you find the plots that you want to want to write um, don't work with your pre predetermined tech, how do you get out of that? I tend to to try to stick within the limits because it's a thing that I find actually quite inspiring. Hmm. Um, or it's I think it's the same sort of idea as the Unipo movement. If, if you put on some artificial constraint, in their case, for example, writing without using the letter E, Yeah. then you are forced to work within that, and the the creativity, in my case at least, uh, benefits from it. I like to have general statements about this is the Empire. It was founded back, back then. I don't know everything about the world at the start, because um, I, I want there to be enough give and take that I can stick things in which are going to be cool and interesting. I don't want to exclude things at the start. I want to include things and leave some uncertainty around the edges of reality. Yeah. Well, a, a world is a much bigger thing than one GM's brain. True. Um, one, one cannot define all of it, and I, and I think it would be an, an error to try. So... Once you've got the, the high-order things and you've got some idea of the low-order things, where do you go next? Well, my traditional problem is linking those up. What I tend to do is build down at one end, build up at the other end. Hmm. I don't... It's when you come to the, to the middle bits, to the middle powers in the world, which they're going to encounter once the, the player characters have got a little tougher, that the trouble starts to, starts to arise. I have a terrible tendency to reveal too much of the deep secrets of everything I, I write. Um, I, could, I could do with Roger's resolution of um, not revealing anything from, from the deep notes. Unfortunately, I, want to, I, do, I do want to show off, and I've been in too many games, I'm afraid, where I, I had no idea of what was going on because it was always just beyond my reach. 
yeah. um, the, the 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 deep reality, and I that's those games slide off me. Um, I, I'm probably not an ideal an ideal player for that. My experience in gaming in general is that players are almost always happy to dig down to a lower level. The more detail, the more day to day stuff. Mm. Um, that there are some players I can think of who who if not prevented will go through every moment of their character's daily routine. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly, I honestly have never cared how many balmies my characters have in the deck. But um, I, I think, to some extent, this, this is fine. And of course, the more detail you have, the, the longer things take to, to work through, and, and the less work oh, the GM has to do. In expeditions, shopping up. expeditions. <laughs> but on the other hand, I, I, I think, my, at least in my experience as a GM, I've generally been trying to pull stuff away from the hyper detail and into a higher level. Mm. You know, the, the, the player wants to say in, in detail, these are the precautions I'm taking to avoid being followed. I say, okay, you've got the relevant skills for not being followed. You've rolled that skill, you've rolled it well. Let's go on to the next thing. Mm, I think I will, I will probably throw a little atmospheric detail in, but, um, some, but, some but the, let's move the story on. But, but I'm, I'm usually, as a GM, pulling that up, whereas the player is All putting right. it down. In that case, let's move to a, a related, slightly related question. You've got this deep stuff in the background. Let's say that you're working in an alternate version of the modern world. There's something weird. There are deep conspiracies. There are magicians. There are aliens. One game I ran set in the 1950s, there were those and Atlanteans too. How do you bring that to the attention of your initially mundane player characters? How do you gradually introduce the weird into the world that they think they understand? That's something that I think a lot of settings are trying to do in different ways. The trick, for me at least, is that if you're setting it in something like the real world, yeah. you you have to say that there is not a general knowledge that there are magicians, aliens, no. fantastic beasties out there. Um, because if there were, lots of other history would have gone differently. So one, one approach is to say you can you it was always there but it was a it was a big secret. Yeah. Um a classic approach to this is there are at least two factions of strange things and they're struggling against each other and trying to keep this secret from humans because there are very few of them mm. and if the humans found out they could just roll over them with tanks. Yeah, the the, the tiger in, in Unknown Armies, you know, sleeping tiger, something like that, I think it's the metaphor, yeah. Uh, in, in World of Darkness you have the vampires and their masquerade and, um. and, and so on. That does start to constrain the world a bit because they have to be plausibly scared yeah. of being found out. On the other hand, you've got things like, well, like uh, Götz Cabal, where they are in charge, they've always been in charge, and they keep it secret for their own convenience. Yes. Well, it's, it, 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 they are that ludicrously powerful. They can have you snatched um, from your home, uh, kill everybody there, and have you erased from existence, and you bunged up in a lunatic asylum uh, for the rest of your life, and will probably do so if it, if it amuses them. It's partly to protect themselves, but uh, they, they aren't realistically afraid of the, the mundanes, at least when the mundanes start out. Yeah, and that, that to me is a slight flaw because, well, why aren't they revealing themselves? I think the, the in-universe answer is probably that they have factions and they don't want to be they, doing they want, stuff blatantly in front of other factions who could then find them. Yeah, um, they, they, don't want, they want to keep their um, life under a bushel and their internal conflicts... Um, well hidden. I think the trick is 
finding a means to let the players know that weird and bad stuff is going on without giving them too solid a sense of what the, the, the nature of that menace is. You have to shrink your imagination down to the level of the player characters and imagine what the foot of the elephant coming down on them looks like to them, they being ants, and, um, and not show them the whole elephant uh, 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 at once. At the same time, I think one has to be aware of the rest of the elephant because this this interface is, if you have a secrecy model, as we've been talking about, it's a breakdown in that secrecy. Now, yeah. clearly, this is not something that happens every day, or the secret wouldn't have been kept. the The plan is that the PCs will eventually learn more, hmm. um, but it shouldn't be easy for them because otherwise they will say, "Well, why didn't my predecessor in this job know?" Yeah. So, I, I think it does depend a lot on on the PCs. You need who, to, who they are, what sort of thing they're going to come across. I think you need to generate a a Marioshka. I said a Marioshka. Is that what, that's the word that those dolls? Matryoshka. Matryoshka. The, the the Russian dolls inside each other. You need to create a set of layered lives for each level of the campaign. A set of things that people are told as they get exposed to various elements. And the, the Gertz Cabal is an extremely good example of this. Maybe maybe I'm not playing it well, well the, enough. The, the outer levels of it, at, at least as, as I see it, could be perceived as a... It's a friendly society. It's like, you know, the Shriners or something. They're yeah. harmless. They, they've got some funny habits. They, they dress, up, dress up weird. Then you get a bit further in, and, well, there's actually some ge genuine uh, serious money flowing around here, and you get a bit further in, and, yes, we are, we are the movers and shakers uh, running the financial system. And then... You start thinking, well, actually, there's some magic as well, but it, but it is layered in that sense. I think uh, the thing is, I think I would I would probably allow the weird to to intrude. I don't know if yeah. you can. There should there should have been some weird weird from the start. I ran. Uh, well, yeah, it, it certainly certainly could be done that. Way. I ran an attempt at a GURPS uh, cabal uh, game, and my problem was that I I dumped the players into it far too quickly. They were um, a three-person anti-gang unit initially in um, the in the fictional American city that Hill Street Blues was, um, was set in, and gradually began to become aware, not gradually enough, I'm afraid, of some of the weirdness behind things, of the the fact that the uh, that the lady Joyce, the, uh, the wife of the captain in the series, um, who was running for governor, had her own uh, voodoo priestess behind her, and the Russians were doing some very strange things, um, taking over uh, from some of the other gangs. I think you run into this as, as, as a bait-and-switch problem. Mm. Do the players know up front, at least roughly, what's going to go on? Yeah, that is the problem. I've never managed to lie terribly well to, to my players. And I, I, as a player, I get pissed off if there's a substantial change in, in the campaign frame. Yeah, if I, Even if, if it's something I might enjoy. Yeah, that is a difficulty. To do it really well, really artistically, I'd have to lie to my players, and this is something which would tend to break the social contract of the, of the games. Can you sell to the players, I'm not going to tell you exactly what it's about, but here you are to start with. I could certainly picture something like 
we're, we're going to start out as mundane cops in, in the modern world. There is going to be weirdness coming in, but I don't want to say exactly what the weirdness is just yet. I, th I think a, I think a player would accept that. My uh, my aforementioned nineteen fifties game, um, as the one with uh, the every kitchen sink of conspiracies, started with the other approach. It started with players waking up on a Scottish island on a, on a New Year's Day with no memory of the past twenty four hours <laughs> and a very weird looking tower standing in the middle of the. Uh, standing in the middle of the island. And since it cranked up over one season to um, one of them sharing a sweat lodge with Winston Churchill whilst he achieved elimination, it was perhaps <laughs> pushing things a little too far. As I say, I have problems keeping the weirdness under control. Well, my, my uh, 1960s psychics campaign started off with, yes, you, you, you've um, signed up to uh, take an experimental antipsychotic drug so they can find out what the side effects might be. And a bit later, you wake up in a body bag after some very strange visions. Mm. And it rather went on from there. But uh, I've taken slightly aback by, by the um, players mutually deciding, yes, all right, the, these these uh, MI5 people are indeed extremely suspicious and, and don't like us very much. On the other hand, we're going to be a lot better off inside than outside. Mm. We've wandered from the point, haven't we? Again. <laughs> yes. Uh, OK, uh, another way of getting fantastic elements into the real world. They've just arrived. Yeah. The the aliens are invading now. And or... That works. That work. That is clean. And it. Uh, you again. There there should be there should be bits of the elephant they can't see as the footfall comes down. Supposedly met with them quietly. Yeah. Um, the the thing that seems to be slightly more common at the moment. Um, you go television series like Falling Skies. The aliens invaded last year. Hmm. And it, it's early enough that people are still learning about them. What's yeah. going on? What, what do they actually want, and so on. Um, but but late enough that you don't have to worry about the background megadeths. You, 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 all, all your, all all your PCs the are people the, who survived. All the major bad stuff has happened. And um, hmm. and they are starting to fight back. I don't know, I think I think people like to play origin stories. I certainly like to. I've, I've talked before about transformative moments. Hmm. But even your, your, your typical uh, zombie story doesn't start with patient zero. It starts with about patient 10, so there's already a, potentially a horde out there. It's too late to do anything about it. It started with patient 0. The average player character has been sold to play patient 0. There's that too, yeah. Something that I haven't seen explicitly done, but it, but it often seem, seems to end up as a campaign setting, is let, let's just push the button and it works. Um, not look too hard into the details. Uh, the, the, an example of this for me is Victoriana, mm -hmm. which is actually quite an interesting setting, but it if you start scratching the surface, to me at least, it starts falling apart. Yeah. Because it is the late 1800s, mm -hmm. and it, it, it's the Victorian era, and you've got elves and dwarves and beastmen, and they've all been around for a very long time, but have, yeah. somehow this hasn't really changed society. And you've got weird steampunk science, and you've got magic. You've got all these things pushing in different directions, and, and yet society is still basically recognisable as late Victorian. Yeah, it is decidedly odd. You don't which, which is fun for a cinematic game. But it's not something I feel I can build a world into. Well, the the the, the uh, it's that you have to have something that the players can be familiar with and hang their characters on. It is very, as we as we said before, it's very difficult to to write something uh, to get people into something that they have no references for. I, I somebody asked me recently why I didn't get Jerome, and I think that's one of the reasons with. 
even though it is it's it's a well written, well described, detailed world, unlike Gorantha or Tekima, which have um, earthly references that they can pick up despite all the many layered weirdnesses uh, behind behind them, they have a small scale that I I can grab hold of, but I can never grab hold of the small scale in Jerome. Maybe maybe the fault lies in in me. It's not not a setting I've ever really looked into. Um, in part because it didn't particularly appeal, but um, it, it's something I'd like to try someday just to see what it's like. I, can, I, can, I couldn't handle the system either, but that may be me. Uh, well, my, my default approach is let's convert it into GURPS. <laughs> you do the hard work. Um, I've, I should mention, as a bad example of world building, though I, want, I would like to love it, uh, a game called Artesia in the Known World, which is based on the uh, Artesia comic books. On the same, on the same name, written by the author of the comic books. These are magnificent uh, books set in um, a very well realised world, in which you've got pike and shot uh, level armies combined with very strong uh, magical uh, background and, and divine forces working around a, a, an uber strong um, central female character whose name is Artesia. The initials make you think, well, well, well. But the the author has written this huge slab of history right at the start of the rules, and there isn't the small scale. There isn't in the in in the core rules a small scale starting point that I've been able to find that you can you can focus the initial building of a campaign around. And that, for me, is uh, something that makes it. Though he's 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 done an awful amount of work and created a huge amount of detail, um, it makes it uh, impossible to use. This is something that I think role-playing games in general have have improved over the years. Mm. And so, something like AD and D really doesn't bother to tell you very much about what you're going to do, other than well, you're going to go down dungeons and bash things. Oh yeah. Um, more more recent games are almost always now will tell you. Here is here is a campaign frame. Here is the default campaign that we expect people to play, at least, and quite possibly here are some others in different places. Yeah, to give people some sort of handle on here is a good place to start. And in in the Victoriana and in um, Castle Falkenstein, which is even less excuse, the 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 conventions of the Victorian period of social snobbery and uh, and class structure and um, and being uh, the swashbuckling adventurer. Are there to give the the players the thing they can bite into and use as a base to build the stories from? Yeah, and whether it makes sense or not um, is another matter. It's a, well, it, it, it's a handy way of saying you can be British and you know, you know what being British is. I can manage that. Yes, as opposed to you 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 are a Pilarkian because and here's here's the wall of text on what a Pilarkian is. Yeah, but you can still dangle off an airship and wave wave your rapier at people. Yeah, I've never really wanted to do. I want to be on. on I want to be at least on the airship. Um, if I'm dangling, I want. I want a pistol. <laughs> other other things that that um, define a campaign. Um, yeah. we, we've been talking about this occasionally before. Is it is it a fixed base or are the PCs wanderers? Yeah, I Ch- changes the flavour quite a lot. It does. In a way, it's easier if you can take the base with you. If you have a ship or a caravan or something like that that will wander about. But I 
I must admit, I like uh, to have a fixed base. I've done uh, peripatetic campaigns. I've only just uh, paused one. Um, and the threat of never having any secure sense of what the campaign is about is a very real one. Yeah, it, it's nice to, to think that one can go home, you know, even if one doesn't very often. Uh, it's, like, it's nice to think that, uh, and as I think I've said before, it's nice for them to have a safe base because then you can threaten. Yeah. But on the other hand, you are adventurers. And going out into the world and seeing what there is to see is a very is a very great excitement. And, and seeing what's over the next mountain, if the GM can make what's over the next mountain really thrilling, is well worth doing. I'm intentional about, about this. Uh, the ideal solution is something like Voyager. Well, something based on Voyager, but better. Mm. When you have your ship flung a huge way away from where it should be, and every every new new um, uh, stop is a, is a fresh encounter with something weird and wonderful, but you still have home and a base and comrades. And, and, a a pool, and, so. and a pool of replacement characters. Yes. Yes, this is one of the real problems with the, well, for example, the, 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 the you suddenly wake up with no memory mm -hmm. um, set up for an adventure. You do need to get replacement PCs in somewhere. Well, yeah, and, uh, and it's still a problem with, if you die a long way from home, how the hell are you going to work the, the replacement character in? There's only so many NPCs hanging around in the group that you can promote. Express clone delivery system. <laughs> Not all universes resolve to paranoia. Unless, of course, the gods are on your side or against you in a particularly helpful way. Yes, it is a problem. I'm sure there must be a fantasy equivalent of the clone delivery system. I shall have to think about what it is. Another thing that I like to consider is um, what is the social position of PCs? And your, your classic adventurers are basically scum. Um, yeah, at least initially. Well, actually, your classic adventurers are the long-lost youngest son of the deposed king, who is going to yeah, solve right. a problem with all your yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, but he hasn't got any money, so that. Um, one way I've been at least think, thinking this over, although it's not as much as formal mechanics, is if you've got a system that that gives you um, social advantages and yeah. disadvantages, like like wealth, social status, um, any sort of fixed assets, that sort of thing. One could look at these being applied at the campaign level. Yeah. Everybody in this campaign is going to have patron MI5, yeah. Yeah. for example, and security clearance and all the other things that go with it. Yeah, and you don't have to pay for those. Those come free. But it doesn't really matter whether they do or not, because everybody in the campaign is going to have them. Yeah. So, in, in effect, if you can tell PCs, yes, you have to pay for this, but that just means they have fewer points for other things. They've still all got the same points. One way I've seen that reflected is uh, in the latest Techinol game, which um, doesn't get much play, um, is the is one of the first things you have to do is decide what um, the clan that uh, the players are a member of, what level that's at. Are you, are you talking about the high nobility, middle classes, um, the the lowly but honest squire, or are you are you actually barbarian scum just landed at, landed at the port? All of which are perfectly reasonable possibilities, but you, you decide it for the group at the start, and that sets the the scope and aim of the campaign. It's certainly going to be an easier stop than having a mixed party would be. Yeah, 
the the people who are thrown together by by fate. It works to an extent, but I I uh, the last time I did it, I did it in Bainstorm, uh, Gertz's setting of Ir, and I had them at the group of practicals, which is um, the equivalent of uh, uh, of a private detective in one of the one of the uh, empl mm -hmm. employed by a semi-respectable firm, and uh, and working working as a team, though they came from many different locations. I should also mention at this point for Rain by Greg Stolte, which answers this problem right up front by saying, yes, you all belong to one political group, one government agency, one temple, one criminal conspiracy, which is stated out in these terms. A faction, one could say. A faction, yeah, um, which can be stated out in, 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 in terms of points and how much it can get done in the society. So it's, and, so it's good at doing things this way, but not that way. Yeah. And you are the people in charge of it. You are the council, or you are you're the council, the clan council, or the ruling uh, council of the kingdom, or you are their agents. And because of your heroic actions, it gets to be more powerful. And that is a very neat um, thing, which you could port to other... Um, other systems very easily. Yes, I, I played it briefly. I found the dice mechanics frankly strange, but I do very much like the basic concept. Mm. Plan to steal it at some point. Yeah, uh, this is a compliment. You haven't stolen it. <laughs> I think we more or less mapped. Yeah. Let's move on to the next thing. And finally, it is, as I mentioned at the start, midsummer. Rogers about to have his midsummer barbecue, a great um, social occasion uh, that weekend. Hey. There will be goat burgers around it. There will be. And um, this turns me to thoughts of a midsummer night's dream, as it always does at uh, this time of year, which turns me to thoughts of Shakespeare and how you might be able to cannibalise bits of the bard into role playing games. I One of my favourite moments in, uh, in running a convention game was when I was running Everway at uh, Cambridge many years ago, and the players suddenly realised that, hang on, we're escorting um, a young prince whose father has died suddenly, and his two university friends, eh. back to the kingdom. Oh, we're in the back plot of Hamlet. And it was beautiful to watch the, uh, uh, the expression across their faces as they realised where they were. I can't remember how I resolved it, or indeed what the point of the story was. They didn't get as far as the ghost. I think uh, they had to keep Hamlet alive long enough to reach the ghost. Uh, I can just see a, a player realising, oh dear, I'm Rosencrantz. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rose Shield, uh, um, Goldstar and Ro Rose Shield uh, hey. were their names in Everway, because in Everway the names have to mean something. Hamlet is Little Pig, of course. And I think there are um, four ways um, that you could possibly use um, Shakespeare. Uh, our listeners should write in and tell me where I'm wrong. First of all, the easiest thing to do is to half-inch characters out. Scroll off the names um, and redefine them as little to suit the uh, setting. But you can easily make use of, let us say, Falstaff, Iago, which is the third make it an excellent villain, but I understand that some American chap is doing a fantasy version of the world, I think. Yeah, Rumor has it. Rumor has it. And uh, 
Mercutio as a background uh, character in almost any game involving the Salisbury Point of the Bank. One of the good things about Shakespeare is that even relatively minor characters have tags that you can catch onto mm. immediately and work out, okay, I'm going to dump him in this situation, how's he going to behave? Yeah. They have definition, they are good player characters. They're good NPCs as well. They are, are good examples of characters because they can be picked up and they can be defined and you can use as much or as little of their backstory translated into your own world as you like. The second level is um, plots. Um, and I mentioned using the, the bit out of Hamlet. Um, somebody tells me that the Lion King is actually Hamlet. Is that right? I think I've heard that. Yeah. yeah. So dragging out the plots and letting the players interfere with them. I don't see there's any reason why they could not be employed, say, by Othello or local equivalent um, to find out there's something really going on with his wife or or put in by the head of the local uh, of the local army say I'm afraid my, my best general is starting to act very strangely he's affecting my mind with this yeah one virtue of them is that while as we all know there are, there are no original plots in the world yeah, he never used one well they are generally speaking at least not immediately familiar to the players in a way that the latest big film is likely to be yeah um, that's, so, that's, that says terrible things about the, about the quality of players we get nowadays. Yes, but if you change things around a bit, you, you, you're you better yeah. chance of being able to sneak something in. True. Then, the third level, level is uh, setting. And there's an uber example of this, which is a book by Paul Anderson called um, A Midsummer Tempest. Yes. Which is an attempt to write the world in which Shakespeare wasn't um, a dramatist, was in fact a perfectly accurate historian and it's set during the English Civil War in that world and um, they managed to summon the fairies out, out, of, out of the woodlands and uh, by bringing up Prospero's lost books from beneath the ocean I seem to recall Indeed. and they have steam engines because if Julius Caesar had clocks well striking clocks, striking clocks um, then the technology will have moved on a little more than it would have had but I'm not sure that's quite the way most of us would want to go. I think you could extract some of the worlds implied by the players into quite neat settings. Almost every setting which involves fairies is going to have Midsummer's Dream yes. in, in its background. And the Tempest gets worked into almost all real world and magic things because it's tangled up with John Dee for no, for no other reason I think also what I would like to do sometime is to write a setting which is like the pagan Britain of King Lear and Cymbeline a world where you have feudal relations and lords and ladies you have no god and well you have or you have the pagan gods. And you, you certainly don't have a structured church. Yeah. Um, the, well, the Christians just aren't, aren't there. And it's a very uncertain when it is, exactly. But it is deeply mythical and, and deeply tragic and, and, and stark. And I've got a feeling there's something, there's something gameable in, in a world like that. Yes, I, I think one would want to add more scaffolding to it, but it's certainly a great starting point. Mm. And finally, 
there are themes, but I'm not entirely sure if anybody's ever agreed exactly what themes there are consistently in Shakespeare across several plays. Well, if you ask a Marxist critic, it's all about Marxism. If you ask a Marxist critic, it's all about the emergence of the middle classes and the class structure, but that's what Marxist thinks everything is about. Yes. What One of my problems is with the criticism that uh, that sees Shakespeare as an essentially conservative writer, um, the sort of criticism that sees the morals of uh, Measure for Measure as being unambiguously in favour of uh, restraint and, uh, and uh, Claudio really should die badly because um, he insists that it can be violated otherwise. And uh, I, I have difficulty getting that, that in. I'm sure there are themes you can perceive in Shakespeare you can drag out into your role play. But I'm not sure that they're really there. How can you bring them into it? I think what, what you might try to do is br bring out a conflict of themes that one could take wholesale. For instance? Well, for example, before The Merchant of Venice, the, the uh, Jewish character in, in, in an English play was basically a stock villain. He was the, yeah. the, the grasping figure of nasty. Shakespeare, being a competent writer, yeah. made, made him a human as well. So so then you have a conflict. I, I saw I saw uh, Jeffrey Gibbon do the first production of Jew and Malta for I think several centuries um, when I was at university and he played it as um, as a combination between stark villainy and, and low comedy, um, when he did the line about um, about but that was in, the, in, in another country. Besides, the wench is dead. It came out as um, Groucho Marx. Besides, that was in another country. Besides, the wench is dead. <laughs> yes, the which is not really relevant. But yes, the emergence. That's an incident, but I'm not sure it can be a theme. Uh, a thing that I find quite a challenge when one is dealing with good dramatic work, and in fact is rather easier when one has bad dramatic work, is picking out one thing. Yeah. Because if it, if the thing is well written, they will be tangled together, and you, it's very hard to take A without getting B and C as well. Yeah, it should be noted that the characters I praised earlier, Falstaff, uh, Iago, for instance, can be viewed as echoes of the medieval uh, vices from uh, mystery plays. They are they are melodramatic characters, rather than dramatic characters. False, uh, it, it has as many as many details, but one central tone. Whereas it's arguable that someone like Shylock has layers to him. That, and, and it's got to be said that role playing games don't do layers terribly well. We yes. do mel melodrama, and the action plot is what we're good at. Not saying it's impossible, but it's not something one, one could assume. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a difficulty. I may have just argued myself out of the the idea of this entire segment. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was a thought for Midsummer's Day. Um, if you have any well, thoughts, one, one more thing you can do. Oh, go on. Is simply set your game in, in the late fifteen hundreds. Um, and there there are a lot of options here. Um, Mage the Sorcerer's Crusade um, can readily be adapted to Elizabethan era and Four Masters has done it. Um, so, so you have hugely powerful mages flo floating around the, 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 the area and trying not to mess around with, with, with Master William too much. Mm. Uh, you, you could, I could very readily see a game where, where your player characters are members of the company. Well, true. 
Um, Neil Gaiman's done some wonderful things with uh, Shakespeare in the Cinematicon. I think, oh, well, there's a peripatetic, but with a base uh, story for you. You basically live in London, but you have to get out on the road. Yeah. And um, you have a you have a, a band of brothers living. Uh, 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 hey, here's, here's a story. The, I'm not sure if it's a role-playing game or, or, or a novel. You are the apprentices, the boy players in Shakespeare's company, and you are the ones who notice the weirdness and the strangeness along the way and have to deal with it. So nobody pays any attention to it. And you have to dress up as people. Oh, I might make a note of that. I think that's quite cool. Makes the essential. I remember that. Mm. I, I was thinking that what, what you also get from this is a ready source of replacement PCs. You're always rec- recruiting new actors as old ones wander off and retire and decide to settle down with a barmaid or well, true. whatever else. Mm. Well, that works. Well, I think we've, we've run to the end of that. And I think, um, if you have any thoughts, anything you'd like us to talk about, or anything you'd like to tell us we're wrong about, please uh, write to us at podcast at techable.tv. And we'd love to hear from you. And we hope you have a very merry midsummer yourself, and you're not stolen away by fairies. Unless you want to be. Does anybody want to be stolen away by fairies nowadays? I hope not. Mm. Take care. <laughs>